This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. I want to take kind of the global year, year-long view uh, to talk about COVID therapeutics and follow the arc of several different therapeutic strategies to show sort of how we've gotten to where we are and maybe what the path ahead uh, uh, will look like. So I want to start by saying that, you know, how difficult things were in the beginning. There was so much uncertainty and, and fear. And I think that this was echoed or driven in some cases by the high fatality rates that we saw. And I think one of the real successes in the COVID epidemic is that these case fatality rates, which you can see, this is just an example of one of many, many uh, pieces of data out there. And we saw the overall case fatality rate really come down uh, worldwide, but but including in the United States from a a quite high case fatality rate, you know, in April 2020. And then this this graph ended in 2021. And in particular, um, in the sickest patients, in hospitalized patients, um, and this came down, and this was from another study uh, looking at a number of U.S. hospitals and just showing the relative reduction in in-hospital deaths. And this was due to a whole variety of, of factors at play, one of which is that we've seen a shift towards younger patients being infected, uh, which, which is not a good thing, although their, their fatality rate is lower. But one of the real successes with COVID, I think, is that we've figured out, uh, at least in part, some of the effective strategies for taking care of COVID. And we've certainly figured out um, many of the strategies that don't work. So I think part of our challenge was also to figure out what to stop doing. Um, And there was a lot of confusion um, in the beginning as as we got to learn what this disease was about. So I want to just talk about a couple of different strategies to, co- uh, uh, to treat COVID and talk about, particularly at UCSF, how these played out in clinical trials as a bit of a narrative of what this has looked like. So first, when we think about COVID therapeutics, we need to remember that the COVID disease stage really informs the treatment. In the beginning, when we see a really a high viral load, um, this is in the earlier stages of disease when people may have symptoms but may not be quite as ill, this is when we really want to give people antivirals. And we know from other diseases that antivirals work best when we treat people early. Then we know that the viral load, um, as people, if they're going to progress and become more ill, and this tends to be the population that is then hospitalized, the viral load actually can come down while a very dysregulated immune response um, uh, takes over. Uh, And this is where uh, medications like anti-inflammatories, including things like steroids, um, can be uh, quite useful. And then throughout the range of COVID disease, there's been a question of when we should be using anticoagulation. We know that COVID uh, causes a dysregulated coagulation cascade and that people can have um, blood clots in their lungs that can be quite serious. Um, and how best to handle that has been an area of active, um, in fact, uh, active uh, investigation. So I want to just walk through each of these categories and talk about one of the you know, key uh, uh, drugs that has now emerged um, as, as a treatment option or strategy here. So the first one is remdesivir. That's probably a, a very familiar uh, name um, to all of us. And just to take a step back and remind you all what remdesivir does, Um, by starting with the life cycle of of SARS-CoV-2. So this is a virus, and like all viruses, it requires getting inside of a cell and hijacking some of the 
intracellular uh, uh, machinery in order to um, replicate. We've heard a lot about SARS using ACE, the ACE2 receptor um, to get into the cells. Um, and once it does get into the cells, um, it then requires this RNA-dependent RNA polymerase to reproduce itself. And this is where um, the uh, remdesivir uh, compound is effective in terms of blocking replication um, of the virus. Once the virus is reproduced, um, then it can make new viruses and uh, that then bud out of the cell and can go on to infect other cells. Remdesivir was um, identified as a candidate that was already in existence that had been developed um, uh, and, and there was much interest because it has broad activity against a bunch of RNA viruses. It was initially developed for use as an Ebola drug. It was not very effective for Ebola, although uh, not clear if it was just given too late. Ebola is um, a very uh, scary disease where people can become quite ill very quickly and uh, hard, to, hard to get them treated fast enough um, to, make, to make a difference with an antiviral. Um, I showed you the life cycle and where this acts. And for those of you who are familiar with HIV, um, this is, it has a similar mechanism of action to some of the antiretrovirals that we use for HIV in that remdesivir looks like one of the building blocks um, of, uh, of, uh, pro of, of the nucleic acids. And in this case is a nucleoside analog of a testing causes the chain of the RNA to be, uh, to be terminated. Unfortunately, remdesivir has to be given intravenously. So there's no, no oral option. Um, uh, that is able to be developed for it, but so all of the hospitalized uh, studies have looked at an IV, um, an IV option here. So one of the first um, studies to really look at um, remdesivir, we were lucky to be a site here uh, at both the UCSF campus and where I work at San Francisco General, and I work with colleagues over at UCSF to get this up and going. And this was really in the early days of the epidemic when um, we had very uh, little to, to, uh, uh, to use. So it was such a boon to have the ability to test anything at all and offer patients um, anything beyond supportive care. So we offered people IV remdesivir for up to 10 days versus a placebo. And that was a difficult conversation to have with people because um, as you can imagine, it is very scary to be in the hospital with COVID, particularly in the early days when um, this was just really a scary, scary disease. Um, and to say to people, look, we have this medicine that we think um, may work, but we don't know for sure. And we're going to offer this to you, but it's a 50-50 chance that, that you will get the medicine versus the placebo. And I think as we all recognize the heroes of the epidemic, of which there have been many, uh, many in so many different fields, I think some of the unsung heroes here are the clinical trial participants um, who were willing to be part of studies like this, despite feeling so sick and feeling so scared. Um, and, and, and willing to, you know, really think through whether this was the right fit for them. What we did find from these studies was that there was a 50% time faster uh, to clinical improvement. So people who got remdesivir got better. Um, it took them, if they didn't get it 15 days and 10 days if they received remdesivir, there was a substantial improvement um, in the uh, number of days that oxygen was required. Less people went on to get invasive ventilation, um, in other words, having a breathing tube. And in one particular group here, there was a 70% reduction in death in those who were on low flow oxygen. In other words, those um, on, the, on the floor in the hospital, but not, not more critically ill in the ICU. It looks like a safe drug, um, less adverse events than placebo. Um, and again, as I mentioned, as with most antivirals, um, the best response occurs when it's given within 10 days of symptom onset.
So I think this was one of the first real wins that we had in the fight against COVID on the therapeutic front. The data were released, um, the initial data were released in May of 2020. Um, and again, pretty remarkable to have some interim data that quickly. Um, and this really represented an enormous international effort um, to uh, examine this drug. I'm not gonna get into right now because we're limited on time. There's subsequently been lots of investigation of remdesivir and one large international study that showed um, that there was not a benefit to mortality uh, overall. Um, I think that these studies are actually compatible with each other. Um, overall, there wasn't a mortality benefit in this study, but there was in one subgroup and uh, people did get much better when they received IV remdesivir. And I think there is great value in people improving more quickly and getting out of the hospital um, and avoiding uh, the complications of being in the hospital, as well as making sure that hospital resources are available to those who are the most critically ill. Um, so I think when we had these data, uh, I think we were all very happy to see that remdesivir made people feel better, but it was very clear that while this was a good start, more progress was needed. The overall mortality in the remdesivir arm was still 11%. So you don't want to feel that when you go into the hospital um, with this disease that you have a one in 10 chance of dying, even if you get um, uh, the, the, the best effective therapy that we had available at the time. And those in the ICU still had a 20% mortality. So again, a real sign that while this was a finally an effective antiviral that did something, um, we, we clearly needed something better, um, including for those, uh, and particularly for those in the ICU. So that then um, leads us to talking about steroids and where steroids fit into um, the treatment of, uh, of SARS-CoV-2. So before June of 2020, um, really we had a very mixed relationship with steroids when we thought about uh, uh, SARS uh, treatment, SARS-CoV-2 treatment. We had a lot of cons that were out there. We knew that um, when we gave steroids to people in MERS and SARS, which um, are related diseases to COVID, that it caused prolonged shedding. So the last thing you want to do is stretch out the length of time that people um, have viral shedding. Maybe that's making them more infectious and, and do worse. We knew that giving steroids to people with influenza, another very serious form of viral disease, increased mortality. And we know that steroids, while they can be very effective in inflammatory diseases, also can be uh, cause adverse events. That's what AEs mean here. So they increase your risk of infection, they can increase blood sugar. And so you always have to consider, boy, is it really worth it giving steroids to someone? Now on the pro side, um, we did have data from those um, from people um, with acute respiratory distress syndrome. So a very serious lung problems um, that land people in the intensive care unit for any number of reasons, including infection, and had some observational data that suggested that giving a steroid called dexmethasone in early ARDS actually may be helpful in terms of um, uh, mortality. And this was actually recommended by some of the societies of critical care medicine um, for use in early ARDS. So we really had this pro-con uh, uh, balance here, but I think on balance, most infectious disease doctors felt like it was not probably gonna be advisable to give steroids because of concerns that this, this might harm people more than it would help them. This is exactly the place when we have equipoise like this where we need good clinical trials. So one of the studies that then came out in June that helped us to really understand the role of dexmethasone was called the recovery trial. And this study um, randomized people to receive dexmethasone or not receive dexmethasone and saw a really marked improvement in mortality, particularly in those in the ICU, where we saw a reduction in death from 41% down to about 30%. 
um, which is still quite high. Uh, I think we all want our numbers to be better than that. A more modest reduction in those who are just requiring oxygen, but not um, in the ICU. And then a trend towards um, actual harm that wasn't statistically significant, but um, in those who got dexamethasone who didn't need any oxygen, who in most cases would have probably been outpatients, although in this case, these were patients in the hospital, um, again, suggesting that timing in COVID and therapeutics is really key. Um, so while dexamethasone can be life-saving when given to people in the intensive care unit, um, it could, may potentially be harmful in those who are still earlier in disease and may have a high viral load and don't have the inflammation that dexamethasone would be treating. Um, there's lots more information that we would like to get about the uh, uh, understanding exactly when we should be giving dexamethasone, but I think um, that the totality of data at this point from other studies suggests um, the benefit, particularly in critically ill patients. And on the basis of this, we really started to, at San Francisco General, where I practice, as well as many other places, um, incorporate the use of dexamethasone into treatment, particularly for critically ill patients. So this is just a snapshot from our treatment guidelines. We haven't been recommending it for everyone across the board, but limiting to those who, um, certainly those who are in the intensive care unit, those who are on high flow nasal cannula, so with a lot of needs, or uh, requiring a lot of oxygen on the floor and have a worsening clinical status. So I wanna then just um, uh, move to one last category of therapeutics um, that I think has been a very interesting arc to follow here. Um, so first we followed the antivirals and we had you know, the real breakthrough with remdesivir in April. Then we had a breakthrough with the steroids um, in, in June of 2020 that was then bolstered by a number of other uh, 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 papers that helped to show the benefit here. We continued to struggle with this increased risk of clotting um, that we saw in patients, particularly if they were quite sick, um, but we would see people with blood clots in their legs, blood clots in their lungs, and sometimes clotting dialysis lines, and really saw a hodgepodge of ways to manage this, um, again, telling us that that was the time where we needed good data, and that good data for anticoagulation is still being assembled, um, but I think that the picture is starting to come together, um, although with some ongoing controversies. Um, so uh, in January of this year, we had some preliminary data from three large multi-center studies that were examining a strategy of giving just prophylactic anticoagulation, which is a low level of blood thinning that we give to people when they come into the hospital to prevent things like blood clots in the legs, versus what we call full-dose anticoagulation, which is really what you would do for someone who, who is at high risk for blood clots or who has something like atrial fibrillation. Um, UCSF and San Francisco General participated in the active 4A study, um, which provided uh, some very important data here in, in collaboration with the attack and remap cap patients. And what we saw was, and we're still waiting for, for final data um, analysis from these um, studies, but that for people who were hospitalized and out of the intensive care unit, this strategy of full-dose anticoagulation, particularly in those who already had an elevated what we call D-dimer, which is a marker that the coagulation cascade has been activated, that they really benefited from full-dose anticoagulation. Whereas people who are already in the intensive care unit and quite sick actually didn't show a benefit um, from being fully anticoagulated, um, and that this may actually prolong their ICU stay, although it didn't raise their risk of bleeding. We clearly need to learn a lot more, but again, really highlighting with COVID that as we've learned over time, Timing is everything, and that, that all COVID patients aren't the same, 
We have to think through where they are in their, their, the course of their disease and how severe their disease is so that we can pick the appropriate therapies um, and make sure that we're giving things that will really be helpful um, and avoiding harm. So again, on the basis of this, as we're getting more data, we have really tried to incorporate these, these data as they evolve into our um, care in real time and have recommended this full dose or therapeutic anticoagulation um, in people who obviously don't have a contraindication um, to, to getting blood thinning, um, who are requiring a, a, a low level of oxygen support, but not those who have become more critically ill in the intensive care unit. Many more questions to, um, uh, that are out there at this point in time around anticoagulation, such as, well, what do we do when we send people home from the hospital? Should they continue to re receive something like an aspirin or a short-term course of anticoagulation? What about people who aren't admitted to the hospital? Should they be receiving anticoagulation? And what about the ICU patients? If this full dose um, therapeutic strategy wasn't a good one, perhaps we should be trying different agents. And there are a number of studies going on, including one, ones that are very active at UCSF and San Francisco General to address these. So we look forward to more data. So I want to just close by taking us back to thinking about the, the, the stages of therapy and, and highlight how we've learned um, where and when to use uh, antivirals, although we really welcome a larger stable of antivirals, um, particularly those that can be given in an outpatient setting. We've started to use anti-inflammatories and we've learned that those are really much better used um, once people are, are, are uh, have progressed to more critical illness. This includes dexmethasone and then some other anti-inflammatories that I didn't discuss tonight, um, but I'm happy to answer questions about such as baricitinib and tocilizumab. And then for anticoagulation, we've really focused on therapeutic anticoagulation in those who are sick but not critically ill while remaining on prophylactic anticoagulation until we understand this better in the ICU. Um, I want to just end by briefly talking about outpatient COVID treatment because I really focused here on the hospitalized patients who are obviously the group that we want to make sure because they're critically ill uh, that, that, uh, that, that we treat them um, as well as we can. But the majority of people um, who have COVID won't be hospitalized, um, uh, even though they may really have a lot of symptoms and, and feel lousy. And so we really would like to be able to treat outpatients for a number of reasons. One, to make them feel better, to reduce the length of symptoms so they can go back to work and go back to their families and, and their lives. We want to decrease the um, risk of having severe disease that progresses to the hospital um, to require hospitalization. We certainly want to reduce infectivity to others around them and would very much like to be able to say to someone, oh, if we gave you this medicine, it, it, it would lead to you being able to go back uh, to being in contact with others in a safe way sooner. We've all heard about long COVID, which I'm not going to talk about today, but I think is going to be addressed in another mini medical school series. And we would love to have interventions that reduce the likelihood of long-term complications. And whatever it is we give to people, we certainly would welcome it being easily administered um, and oral medications um, are ideal uh, to be able to get to people so uh, quickly and easily. So right now, unfortunately, the number of medicines that we have that check these boxes um, are very limited. Right now, we only have monoclonal antibodies, which are mostly given IV, but um, there are some studies showing that they can be given intramuscularly. These are limited to those at highest risk, and there are data to support use for prophylaxis in um, places like nursing homes, although this indication is not yet FDA approved. Unfortunately, these have to be given through an IV, which requires coming to some kind of a 
a medical center, although there have been um, experiences with uh, healthcare vans driving around and administering these, um, it's obviously a higher barrier. And distressingly, we've seen that some uh, of the monoclonal, uh, monoclonal antibodies can be less effective against some variants. So it's something we need to very actively track. However, there are a number of very promising agents um, that are under investigation, uh, but we would really welcome more data. Inhaled corticosteroids look like they may um, reduce um, uh, uh, the length of uh, symptoms and be very uh, well tolerated um, and safe for patients. Inhaled interferon has been very promising in the UK for outpatients, and we're looking forward to uh, for inpatients, and we look forward to more data for outpatients. A lot of interest in fluvoxamine, which is an uh, antidepressant, um, but also may have antiviral and anti-inflammatory activity. And then a number of oral antivirals, um, which are under very active uh, uh, evaluation, and we hope to have more data on these soon. So I will go ahead um, and just close with this, that two studies just to be aware of, one enrolling um, right here at San Francisco General, um, and uh, we're very actively looking for folks um, that's evaluating a number of these um, approaches, including IV intramuscular and subcutaneous monoclonal antibodies, IV polyclonal bovine-derived antibodies. Boy, does that sound like science fiction. Um, an oral medicine called Camostat, which um, blocks entry into cells, um, and then inhaled interferon beta, which I mentioned as a promising um, intervention. And then there's a nationwide contactless study. In other words, you can sign up online and medicines get sent to your house that are evaluating some other strategies, including the diabetes medicine metformin, um, the antiparasitic ivermectin, and fluvoxamine. And this is available um, at the link I've shown you here. So I'll go ahead and stop here and see if we have um, time for questions, but really want to thank the organizers uh, for including me and thank you all for uh, joining me this evening. Thanks, Dr. Luke Meyer. That was fantastic. Um, we have a question from the audience. In the early stages of the pandemic, we heard from UCSF researchers discussing the way some traditional competitive barriers were being dismantled in the light of the worldwide emergency. Was your experience uh, similar? And do you think there might be more permanent change in the way we speed research data um, in the way we... Uh, uh, research in the re way research data will be accumulated and shared. And there was like, I, I think in our last series, they talked about um, the uh, um, preprint um, uh, literature that is now coming out before it's peer reviewed. So I think, you know, especially with therapeutics, that's becoming more and more important as far as um, what you know what you can learn so for example what's going on in the uk and how we can be way more nimble so thoughts about that yeah no i agree i think from a research perspective um there have been some real covid silver linings um in terms of just this enormous global collaboration i mean i think we all recall when the uh the full sequencing of one of the uh, COVID genomes from China was just released online and for everybody to, to have and to share. And I think that that isn't something that might have happened that might have been kept more proprietary um, uh, in, in other settings. Certainly an enormous amount of uh, collaboration, the speed with which um, research has gone forward and a lot of institutional barriers have been broken down. I and other colleagues here at UCSF have been so thankful for, uh, you know, the, the university for allowing us to move forward, obviously safely, 
um, and, and following the rules, but saying, hey, look, we're in a different place and, and we have to be able to go forward. That act study that I mentioned, um, we got up and going at UCSF in 11 days, um, which was really remarkable for us, you know, to be able to do that. Um, but I'm really hopeful that we can hold on to a lot of that and say, hey, look, maybe we don't need to go back to having things take quite as long as they as they took before. Um, and how can we speed things up? You mentioned the preprints, and I think that's also been a really remarkable, you know, move forward. Yes, we all value peer review, which is when, you know, papers get read very carefully and studied by colleagues before they're published in, in, in journals. And that is important. Um, but I think it's also made us all ask the question of, well, why does peer review take so darn long? And if it does take that long, what can we all do to help make that go more quickly? Because preprints are good, peer review is even better, and there has to be something in, in between those two. So I think we've all really learned a lot. I mean, I think the vaccines are truly one of just, just mind-blowing in their efficacy. I think if we'd all had a betting pool before November of last year to say that, you know, do you think you would have three, four, five highly effective vaccines available I wouldn't have taken that bet. No way. Um, and that has been enormously uh, collaborative. So when we put our, our minds to it, we can really do this. And I think it's going to be on us to keep the pressure up to make sure that we say, hey, look, there's no reasons that science has to be slow. We're not cutting corners, but I'm hopeful that we're getting rid of some of the bureaucracy and, and siloedness that, that I hope we won't go back to. A question is, if, if you just take... So you outlined therapies like the antivirals, the anti-inflammatories, and the anticoagulants, and that there are different places along the spectrum that we use them. So knowing what you know at this point, you know, when we initially were in the pandemic, we were seeing like 10 to 20% hospitalization rates, um, 5% um, ICU stays, 5 to 10% ICU requirements of people who are infected and, you know, a two to 3% death rate. Um, at this point with wider testing, so we know how many more people have the disease and with better management and therapeutics, if you took a best case scenario, where do you think those numbers would fall? For someone who gets COVID, what percent would need the hospital? What percent would need the ICU? And what would the mortality be, you know, if you take a thousand people, you know, I think the biggest confounder to that, Jeff, and I'm not trying to dodge your answer. I, I will go there, but it's it has to do with who the people are. So early in the epidemic, this was much more older patients um, mm -hmm. by and large. And that's where we just saw, you know, a huge mortality um, no matter what we did. And I think our care got a whole lot better. And I think that that when you have 80 year olds who are hospitalized now, we, we can give them excellent care, um, and there's every reason to hope that they will do well. So we've seen a real shift in the epidemic, though, because the older patients are vaccinated. They are not getting infected by and large. We still do see younger patients who get very ill. So we've all, you know, I don't want to say that this isn't a disease that can cause harm across the age spectrum, as we have all seen. So I think people are doing better with the disease just by virtue of their age, um, but I do think we've seen just across the board the case fatality rate come down, including the likelihood that you'll be, you know, hospitalized and, and have a prolonged hospitalization or, or even die. But I think we can't take credit for outpatient therapeutics because by and large, we really haven't had those. I mean, 
monoclonals are nice, but, but they're given to a fraction of the population. And everything else has really been supportive care beyond besides vaccinations, which we know are incredibly effective at reducing your likelihood of being hospitalized. So I think that my, my message there is that it's a moving target. I think that most people won't be hospitalized. Most people who are hospitalized can do very, very well. Um, but we still do see young, healthy people end up in the ICU. And, and that just feels like every time that happened, it's just a, a tragedy because it's preventable. Great. Great. Thank you. Thank you. Um, we have uh, an audience member, uh, Lena Emery, who asked, is there a relationship between the clots associated with COVID-19, so the hypercoagulability of the patients who are affected, and the clots that we're seeing with the, um, you know, uh, with the vaccines from Johnson and Johnson and AstraZeneca. So yeah, it's a great question, and the answer is likely yes, related to the the, the spike protein of the um, the spike protein of COVID. So what we think is happening with the very rare clots that have been seen with Johnson and Johnson as Astra and AstraZeneca is that the COVID spike protein um, is creating this antibody complex uh, that, that, that then causes platelets to be activated and, and, and lead to clotting. And again, very uncommon for that to occur. I haven't seen a good explanation for why this can occur specifically in some of the, the, the vessels in the brain. So my suspicion is, is that there's something about the spike protein that is triggering this, the, the, the clotting cascade. I think when people have active COVID, it's probably a component of the spike protein as well as this dysregulated inflammatory response. And we know that even in, in other diseases that are not COVID and not viral, when people become very sick in the ICU, they can have an increased chance of clotting. But this has been above and beyond that. So my suspicion is, is that it is something about this spike protein that's really helping to, to, to drive that and that we have to be thoughtful in what our, what our approaches are there. But as we've learned, COVID keeps you humble. The one place where I would have guessed it made the most sense to fully anticoagulate people, and this is where I think most people thought in the beginning, was in the intensive care unit. And, it, and it's turning out that we really need to potentially rethink what our strategies are there or use different anticoagulation strategies because perhaps the horse is out of the barn. Thank you. And, and we should also clarify that the clots that are associated with the vaccines are frequency of about one in a million. So you have to factor that in to any vaccine hesitancy because the, the risk of contracting COVID and getting critically ill is way higher than that, no matter where you are, even in San Francisco. Yeah. So important to say that. Um, yeah. Can you say a little more about, uh, uh, this comes from Dr. Barron, can you say a little more about patient selection for outpatient treatment, specifically the, the monoclonal antibodies that are given IV? And, and do you just have to be a high-level politician or who's getting those? You do not have to be a high-level politician. They're approved through the emergency use authorization. So it's not a full FDA approval, but there's um, they want to give it to people within 10 days of symptom onset. So I think that's really important. Again, monoclonal antibodies are a form of antiviral, right? The goal is to just, you know, attack the virus with these very specific antibodies that will bring the viral load level down. And so the sooner you can give them, the better off they are. So within 10 days of symptom onset, but potentially even earlier is better. 
and then it is restricted. And I, I don't have the EUA right in front of me, but I think you have to be 65, 60 or 65 or above, or have other comorbidities, including, um, you know, uh, being overweight, having diabetes, having heart disease. And there are some indications for adolescents um, who also would qualify. So, so a, a healthy 40-year-old person um, with symptomatic COVID would not be able to access these probably because they're not going to benefit from them. So it's not meant to restrict their access to, uh, you know, a medicine that's going to help. You're just on the margin. It's not going to be that useful. For people who are older, this may reduce their likelihood of being hospitalized. Um, but even the magnitude of benefit isn't all that big. Like in some groups, if you look at, at diabetics, it will reduce your likelihood of hospitalization from 10% to 6% in some populations, meaning that 90% that of people aren't getting hospitalized anyway. Um, so, so it is a marginal benefit, but I think if you're in a higher risk group, these are generally very safe, so it's worth doing. Um, and the question has been how then to get access. Um, I'll say at UCSF, they've done a really terrific job of having a, a, a very accessible program. People can come to the emergency room. They can be referred by their healthcare provider. They've really tried to make this accessible to people who qualify through the emergency use authorization. One interesting piece that I didn't mention, though, is that monoclonal antibodies, you would think, well, gosh, we should really be giving these in the hospital then, too, right? If these are these targeted antiviral and the studies that have looked at most of the anti uh, the monoclonal antibodies in the hospital have shown that really it didn't show a benefit. And it may be that it was just too late by the time people are hospitalized. But um, if you are hospitalized for COVID, it's, that's actually not a time when the monoclonals are, are, are recommended. But I think the message here is that if, if someone is sick and thinks that they do qualify to reach out to their um, provider, um, because there are oftentimes um, uh, the ability to get monoclonal antibodies, you just have to look around for it a little bit. And the emergency room or your, or your provider may be two places to go for that. So the idea is these monoclonal antibodies mop up the, the virus that's circulating in your body, prevent it from spreading. Is that the idea? That's right. And they were developed. It's actually a very, you know, kind of a cool story. We've had monoclonals for many other diseases. We've used them in um, uh, uh, for rheumatologic disease, for cancer. So it's not new that we're using, you know, monoclonal antibodies. And these have been by and large derived from patients who've had a very nice and robust response. So they took the, the antibodies from patients and, and trying to figure out, well, which of the, the immune uh, responses in this person is really doing the best to, to, to bind and neutralize the virus. What we found is that using just a single monoclonal probably isn't as good as using two monoclonals. Most of them target the, the receptor binding domain of the spike protein. And so having two uh, helps to outwit the virus a little bit. Um, and, that, and then that seems to work um, quite well. There's a variety of different ways to treat, to tweak these strategies and the good news is that they've made these antibodies last for a fairly long time. So they, the half-life is weeks to, to months. So a single infusion will kind of give you this, this uh, stretched out um, amount of antiviral protection. The downside of that is, is that they don't recommend that you get vaccinated once you've gotten the monoclonal antibody. You, you probably need to wait about 90 days. Um, just a reminder that people, if they do get a monoclonal, that they should wait on that, but that we are recommending that everybody who gets COVID still should be vaccinated um, when the time is right for them uh, if they've gotten some of these therapeutics um, because it may provide some extra protection. Thank you. And, and I think we should just acknowledge the, um, the heroic efforts that our doctors and scientists at UCSF 
are making in this in this uh, pandemic. So I can just tell you that uh, when I admit a patient in the middle of the night with COVID, I get a call from Annie saying, did you start the therapy or why did you give this therapy? And I'm just like, when are you sleeping? It's, it's really, it's been, uh, I mean, it's, it's just been stupendous. The, the effort that's been put in by, um, by our doctors and, and uh, researchers. So thank you. Thank you all for, for what you've done. Um, any closing thoughts before we uh, finish up for the night? I think we're all feeling like we're getting into a space, at least in the Bay Area, where we're having a little room to breathe. I think we all deserve some room to breathe and to think about, not think about COVID 24 hours a day. But I really do hope that one thing we hold on to from what has been a very challenging experience for all of us is that there are more pandemics to come. This doesn't really come as a surprise and, and no one wants to think about pandemics. They're not very popular. And I think we all want to put this one on the back burner. But I, I think if we use this in the right way, we'll be better prepared, both from the science that you talked about, from a societal perspective, um, and from an economic perspective, to, to really have our vigilance up in the right way. Not so we don't live our lives, but so that we can identify another pandemic or should COVID worsen or change down the road so that, so that we don't feel quite so, so blindsided. So I, I really... I'm an optimist, and I think that there's something good that we can get out of this if we if we can hold on to our our memory and not just try to say, "Oh gosh, I, that that was awful. Let's let's never have it happen again." Which I hope it never will. But I think being prepared uh, will go a long way. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.